Good morning, Hickory family. I am honored to be with you this morning, continuing a message series that we've been in throughout most of the summer on the book of James, where we've been taking a verse-by-verse, word-by-word account of the five chapters from Pastor James to his Jerusalem church. But before we jump into the verses we're going to be looking at this morning, I have a couple questions I want to ask, get a lay of the land, see who I'm talking to. I want to see show of hands. Who here likes to make plans? You like planning, you like lists, you, whoa, okay, hello. You like, uh, you know, uh, probably, probably like budgets and calendars, you love Excel, you like to chart the course and know where you're going, a fair amount of you. Folks who just raised their hand would probably resonate with verses found in the Bible like this one in Proverbs 21.5. It says, good planning and hard work leads to prosperity. You know, who doesn't want prosperity in their life? And, and Pro- Proverbs tells us how to do it. Good plan. You got to have a good plan. You got to roll up your sleeves, work hard at the plan, leads to growth. Now, if you don't like plans, don't let this verse make you shy because I got a verse for you. But I want to see how many people like to avoid plans. You know, you, you've done the plans. Plans don't really work the way you plan them anyway. Good. Yeah, courageous. I like it. Come on. Come on. You know, you're more of a day by day. Let's take it as it comes. Let's just see what life brings us because I got a verse for you too. It's found in the Gospel of Matthew 6, 34. It says this, do not worry about tomorrow. (laughs) Don't worry about the plan. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will worry about itself. Focus right here and right now. You can kind of hear Bobby McFerrin playing in the background, right? Don't worry. Be happy. Look at me. I'm happy now, right? You know, And, and it's important because sometimes we can get so focused on planning for life in the future, we can forget to live life right here, right now. So there's, there's value in both of these perspectives. How do I know that? For the Bible tells me so. Okay. But there's two sides to every coin, right? And there's potential problems, no matter who rose, raised their hand for what um, perspective. There's potential problems that we need to be wary of and look for. If you are a plan maker, the potential is that you could use that perspective as an excuse for not adjusting. You spend so much time, so much focus, so much energy making the plan, some resources putting into the plan, energy to communicate the plan. Sometimes you can get married to that plan and stick to that plan despite what's happening around you. I kind of think there's a few churches that fell into that in the last two and a half years where they had the plan that worked for their church, uh, to grow their church and and to be successful. And then the pandemic hit and they paused the plan, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited, and they waited. And they said, well, when life gets back to normal, we'll restart the plan. When things open up, we'll restart the plan. And because they waited and didn't assess what was happening around them, by the time they restarted the plan and opened the doors, the church that came back was very different than the one that left. And, and uh, some churches are still adjusting to that. The potential problem is sometimes we can get so stuck to the plan that we get stuck. Potential problem uh, of plan avoiders, like plan makers use it as an excuse to not adjust. Plan avoiders can use their perspective as an excuse for not preparing. This idea of practice makes perfect has some, a lot of truth to it. And a lot of times if we don't focus on tomorrow and we just live in today, we miss opportunities to prepare, to practice, to Uh, invest in and get better in some of the things that God wants us to do to put us in the best position, take advantage of the opportunities 
of tomorrow. So I think we agree both of these perspectives lived in their extremes is problematic. And that's kind of where James takes us as we look at the remaining verses here in chapter 4. Beginning in verse 13, James says this, Come now, I love that, come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade, make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. I just got to start with this come. After four chapters of James, can we get a sense for who he is? He's like, come now. You know, don't, don't kid a kidder. Come now. Sell silly somewhere else. Come now. You're going to say, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And then the results are going to be this and that. You don't even know what tomorrow holds. Come on. Come now. What James is saying here is simplistic and yet profound. And a lot of times in certain areas of our life, it just completely escapes us. What he's saying to us is this. Life is uncertain. Life is uncertain. Come now. He's not a baby toe in the water kind of pastor. He's a cannonball right in the center of the pool. Everybody's going to get wet. Life is uncertain. Life is uncertain. We don't know what the future holds. Collectively, as a society, last two and a half years, can I get one big old stinking amen? Right? I mean, I think it's safe to say that life in the last two and a half years has not gone according to many of our plans. None of us really could have anticipated the extent to which we would have basically shut down the world in the last two and a half years. I, I can still remember in March of 2020, Pastor Justin and I had plans uh, to go out to dinner. It was, it's his birthday in the beginning of March. Just a plug there for, for Justin, right? We had plans to go to a steakhouse. And as the date approached, uh, all the states were making their determinations of when the stay-in-place order was going to be and when the shutdown was going to begin. And it just so happened this, our state of Delaware decided it was going to be the very next morning. So we, we arrived at the steakhouse to all these posted notes, um, post, postings plastered on the front door. One read more ominous than the other, like the sky was going to fall and the world was going to end. And it was unnerving. And then you walk in the door... And it was business as usual. The place was packed. Everyone's standing close to each other. We were having dinner, processing. What does this mean? Kind of joking a little bit, you know. Is this our last meal? You know, if this is our last meal, I had a nice steak dinner. That's not, not a bad way to do it, right? But collectively, we do not know what the future holds. Life is uncertain. Individually, relationally, maybe you've had to walk this out. I think all of us know one or many people. I certainly do who have had to make really significant life decisions in the last couple of years. Am I getting forced out of my job? Do I need to change jobs? Do I take early retirement? Do I move? Where am I going to live based upon the economic climate or the educational opportunities or who's in the governor's chair, right? Um, you know, how, how am I going to educate my kids? Public school, Christian school, private school, homeschool. I know multiple Parents who swore they would never homeschool their kids today are homeschooling their kids. I mean, these are the, the decisions that people have had to make. Life is uncertain. We do not know what the future holds. Individually, personally, for me, this was never more evident to, to me than on September 25th, 2012. Next month, it'll be a decade since I was in a, a violent and massive uh, car accident. Uh, started out as a Random Tuesday. No, nothing random about this day. I started uh, my day taking Sam, my son, to middle school. And I thank God every day that I was able to drop him off. Because I had almost an hour commute with me to 
work to the office, and I didn't get very far into it, about five, ten minutes down the road, when an 18-year-old who was very distracted uh, crossed the double yellow line and slammed into me at like 50 miles an hour. No chance to brake, no chance to swerve. My little 1999 Honda CRV took the full impact of that SUV and uh, had about 300,000 miles on that car. Loved that car. Uh, I am so thankful for 1999 technology. It, it doesn't hold a candle to the safety technology of today, but I'm here, so it was enough. I'm, I'm thankful. But when the impact happened and, um, and subsided, I can remember, you know, if you've been in an accident, if you've seen an accident, you can imagine, right? Your, your mind's racing, your adrenaline's pumping, you don't know what the next step is. What are you going to do next? And my thoughts were, I'm going to get out of this car. And then I, I heard a voice in my ear, and it was a man who climbed in the back seat of my car, and he said, I just witnessed the whole accident, and I called the ambulance. They're on their way. I am an EMT, and if you'll allow me, I'm going to secure your neck and ask you to just stay still until help arrives. I thank God for that man. Never saw his face. Name never appeared on the accident report. I thank God for him because things could have been so much worse. As it stood, three days in the hospital and more than three months out of work, physical therapy, even after I got back to work, I thank God for physical therapists. They're geniuses. They're also masochists. <laughs> but they're geniuses at helping you get your body back. My core took the run of it, chest, neck, shoulders, back. And I'm here. And I am grateful. Incidentally, less than two weeks after that accident, I'm still walking around like I'm 100, needing help to do just about everything. I got offered an opportunity to leave my corporate career and become a pastor and started that pretty much four or five-month process of transitioning out of my life as I knew it and started my life as I know it. And I thank God every day for that. Life is uncertain. We don't know what tomorrow holds. It goes on in this verse, James says, what is your life? An incredibly, profoundly important question for all of us to answer every day. What is your life? For you are a mist, typical James subtlety, right? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes when you see that word mist, I want you to think deep breaths on a cold day. It makes its mark. It's visible in the air for everybody to see. What is your life? Is that mist just something that is going to trail away, pointing everybody to self, getting, going through life, getting all the experiences you can, feeling all the feels that you can? And as the saying goes, using up every ounce of life you have, sliding into your grave with a drink in one hand, however it goes, right? You know, is that your life? Or does that deep mist on a cold day point everybody who sees that mist back to the one who gave you that life, back to the one who drew breath into you, planned you, purposed you, fashioned you in your mother's womb? What is your life? Equally as simplistic and equally as profound as life is uncertain, James wants us to know that life is brief. 
We do not know what tomorrow holds, and we do not know how many tomorrows we hold. And that was never more evident to me than about a year and a half later, in February of 2014, when my dad suddenly passed away. And my dad and my mom watched our kids a couple times a week. And that week, at the end of that week on Friday, he came to our house, dropped our kids back off, and did what he always did, gave Sam a hug put his cheek out for Olivia. She gave him a kiss. Before she could run away, he grabbed her arm and said, hey, I got another one of those. Come on. He had not been feeling well, feeling a little listless, run down, had an appointment on Monday with a cardiologist to get looked at. This was Sunday morning, about 4 o'clock in the morning. I just want you to know, incidentally, pastors don't tend to sleep well on Saturday night. We don't sleep well for a multitude of reasons. We're carrying a lot of what you guys are walking with. But we're also caring. We also don't sleep very well because we're excited because it's Sunday. And this is the day that we get to come together, encourage each other, hold each other accountable, build each other up. And so I wasn't sleeping very soundly when the, when the phone rang about four in the morning and I leapt up and grabbed it. It was my mom on the other line. She said, Andy, your dad's having a heart attack. The ambulance is here. They're going to take him to the hospital. Can you meet us there? And so threw some water on my face, some shoes on my feet, told Suzanne, and I was out the door. You can imagine, body sweating, minds racing, adrenaline pumping. Meet my folks at the hospital. They wheel my dad into a small room with a lot of doctors, a lot of nurses, a lot of beeping technology, and set up two chairs in the hallway right outside the door for my mom and I. I could hear my dad answering the doctor's questions, and I was encouraging my mom, saying, Ma, they're going to find the blockage, and he's going to be better than ever. He's going to be stronger. He's going to feel so much better. All this is going to be taken away. And so we're sitting there, and she's squeezing the life out of my hand. And I'm praying, Lord, take this. Lord, heal him. Lord, bless those doctors. Make him new. Restore his strength. Take this from him. And as the minutes clicked on, those prayers became deep and they became guttural. And I said, take this, Lord. Take this from my mother. Take this from me. I don't want this. Bless him now. Touch him now. Heal him now. Make him Better than ever. And that only stopped when I felt a hand on my knee. And I opened my eyes and it was the doctor. Kneeling down in front of us. Saying how sorry he was. That everything that could have been done was done. And while that was stark and that was traumatic as you can understand and appreciate. I want you to know. Some people need to hear this today. That God is good. And that God answers your prayers. Selfishly, I wanted more time with him. But God answered my prayer. Not in the way I wanted it. Not when I wanted it. But my dad is better than ever. My dad has no more pain. My dad is rejoicing with Jesus. My dad had a good set of pipes. He's singing. He's worshiping. He's glorifying. I don't know why he didn't pass those pipes on to me. 
Life is uncertain. And life is brief. We do not know what tomorrow holds. And we don't know how many tomorrows we hold. But we know who holds tomorrow, don't we? Come on. How you and I define this word life. What is your life? Determines what we do with it. Like that miss, life can be in pursuit of self. Just accomplishing, achieving, pointing people to self, seeing how you trend in today's vernacular. Okay, following your emotions that seem right to you. There's a way that seems right to us. This end is the way to death, resulting in an empty life. 1 Timothy 6.21, Paul speaking, and he says, Some people have missed the most important thing in life. What is your life? He says they just don't know God. That mist, like I said, can point everybody who sees it back to the one who gave it. Be filled with purpose. God tells us how to do that. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. What James is encouraging us to ask God every day is this. How do you want me to live this life in relationship with you? How do you want me to live this life in relationship with you? Too many of us make our plans and then we ask God to, and then we can even consider God to have, invite him into the plan. How do we live this life in relationship with you? Pastor I know told a story several times that stuck with me uh, about his relationship with his wife. When they met, they met in Bible college. He was studying to become a pastor, preacher. She was studying to become a missionary. And when they met and went on their first date, scraped a couple bucks together, got an ice cream. They're walking around campus. And they recognized there was a spark and an interest that they wanted to continue dating. And they walked in a little park on, on the campus and where they had benches. And they sat on the bench. And she suggested that they pray. Ask God to bless this, start of this new relationship. So he tells the story. He took it as an opportunity, right? Studying to be a preacher, he said, I'll go first. And he decided to wow her and impress her with his oratory skills. So, you know, dearest heavenly father, you know, all theologically sound, all scripture referenced perfectly, right? This eloquent oration. And as he gets to the end of it, you know, in Jesus' name. He opens his eyes thinking he's impressed her. and He just sees her head bowed, eyes closed. Moments of silence. Going, what's happening? And she just very quietly but very confidently says, Lord, today I invite this man into our relationship. Exactly. And as he tells the story, he's like, and I was undone because she gets it. It all starts with him. This growing, maturing, dynamic relationship that she has with God. In that moment, in that place, her prayer was to invite this man into that relationship. That relationship is the priority. For all of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus Christ, the same is true. That our relationship with God should be the priority. 
They've been married for decades, so it worked. What James is warning us here in these opening verses is that we lack knowledge and we lack power. When we go off on our own, make our own way, act as our own mini-God, we don't have a lot to work with. We lack knowledge about tomorrow and we lack the power to do anything about our lack of knowledge about tomorrow. Thankfully, the Lord knows all about our tomorrows and he even knows how many tomorrows we're going to have. So verse 15 encourages us, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and we will do this or that. When you and I are tempted, like I said, to follow our own feelings, our own emotions, our own will, our own strength, our own might, James is letting us in on some good news, that while life has uncertainty, life has brevity, thankfully, all of it is under God's sovereignty. God knows our tomorrows, and he knows how many tomorrows we're going to have, but it doesn't end there. The good news gets even better or gooder. Take your pick. God is all-powerful. He, The Bible tells us he has power over all things, and he is the source of that power. We give the enemy too much credit. We give the enemy too much credit. The power of God, somebody needs to hear this today, the power of God and the power of Satan are not equal. Luke verse, chapter 8. You don't know this story. I encourage you to read it. The demon-possessed man, been possessed for a long period of time. Jesus comes on the scene. And read it. The demons shudder at Jesus. Jesus' presence. The name of Jesus. Plead with him to not annihilate them. Throw them into the abyss. Ask for permission they can leave this man and enter into a herd of swine. The power of God and the power of Satan are not equal. God is all-powerful. The Bible also tells us that God is all-knowing. He has knowledge of all past, present, and future events, all details, all connection points. Don't escape his attention. He never takes a break. He has knowledge of it all. John 1 tells us there is nothing made that he did not know about. All of it, he knows. God is all-powerful. God is all-knowing. Bible also lets us know that God is ever-present. All of God is everywhere all the time. We are constrained by time and space. All of God, not just in the important places, not just with the important people, all of God is everywhere all the time. Proverbs 15 tells us the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil, and on the good. So the Lord wants us to make a plan. The Lord's not anti-plan. He's anti-presumption. He's anti-presumption. He's anti-ego. He's anti-pride, right? I will resist the proud, he tells us, but give grace to the humble. He's anti this idea that we can do it on our own. So if the Lord wills, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, that's not a command to rote repetition. Lest anybody thinks that they don't start their sentences with, if the Lord wills, well, then you're not safe, right? It's not a command to rote repetition. It's not a hallmarky kind of throwaway line. Instead, it's a realization and a deep conviction that God's sovereignty is over all and an invitation to a relationship. He is jealous 
for you. So the Lord's not anti-plan. He's anti-presumption. He's anti-pride. And he's anti-arrogance. Verse 16 says this, As it is, you boast in your arrogance. And all such boasting is evil. We hear that word arrogance and we think of the egotistical, narcissistic, cringeworthy statements that we sometimes hear in different aspects of life, right? Sports. I am the greatest. I mean, Muhammad Ali, he was the greatest. No. But I mean, you know, you know what I mean in, in all aspects of life. Politics. You can just close your eyes and pick a politician. You're going to hear some cringeworthy statements that are full of arrogance. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. It is that boasting that we hear. It's the boasting that's the external. But James is speaking to believers. He's speaking to you and I. And he wants us to see arrogance for what it really is, truly. We hear the boasting on the outside. And, you know, politics, every two years, four years, we put our hope in the person who boasts the best, and we vote for them. On the outside, on the external, everything seems fine. But James wants to shine a light on what I like to call the subterranean arrogance. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. The arrogance is usually a few levels beneath the surface. Man looks at the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. You know, those places in our heart that we don't like to open up to others. Places in our heart we don't like to shine the light in. And that's exactly where James is taking us. He's not subtle. He's bold and he's sober and he's unambiguous. And that's where he's going to take us. And that subterranean arrogance. Some folks, for example, are addicted to a little three-letter word. It's Y-E-S. Can you do this for me? Yes. Can you get that for me? Yes. Can you do that service for me? Yes. Ride that function for me? Yes. And what do we call them? We call them people pleasers, right? And that's that soft edge, very nice label. On the, on the surface, everything seems fine. After all, who doesn't want somebody who says yes to everything you ask, right? We call them people pleasers. On the surface, everything seems fine. And James is saying we need to look at that subterranean arrogance. We need to look at what's feeding that. If you don't ever say no to those requests, then you're the one who's always seen as providing, as, as meeting the needs, as coming in and saving the day. What James is saying is that's actually control. If you're the one who's always saying yes, you never say no, then you're think you're controlling the situation up here on the surface so that everyone sees you in that role that feeds your identity. James is saying that control is prideful and it's ego-driven and it's arrogance and it's evil. Ouch. Some people aren't addicted to that three-letter word of yes. Some people are addicted to the two-letter word of no. And I don't mean, no, they're never going to do anything for you. I mean, no, they're never going to accept help. There's, these are people who say, I have a tough time accepting help. I have a tough time asking for help. And on the certain, what do we call them? We call them dependable. They never accept help. They're the ones who are always doing it. And who doesn't want that, right? Somebody you can rely on. Somebody you can depend on. And listen, we should help people. So if you've got some people-pleasing tendencies, that's a good thing. It, it, we like dependable people. If you're there, your yes means yes, and your no means no, that's a good thing. These are folks that are 
have a need to say yes, are addicted to saying yes, are addicted to saying no. No, no, I got it. You don't need to help me. No, no, let me take it. We call them dependable and everything on the surface seems fine. And James is saying, look a few levels beneath the surface. Because when you don't ask for help easily, when you don't accept help readily, what you're really saying is, my way is the best way. I'm the one who can do it the best. My system is the best. I can do it the quickest, the cheapest, the most efficient. And if I don't ever say yes to those offers of help, well, then guess what? I'm ensuring the fact I'm going to do it, and I'm going to do it right. Because my way is the best way. And James is saying that's control. And that's ego-driven, right? That all the parts truly do supply the body. If we don't give people opportunities to walk out their giftings and to honor God with what he's put inside of them, then we're never going to see that there actually was maybe a better way than your way. It's actually control, and it's arrogance, and it's evil. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and all such boasting is evil. What I want us to see when we focus on this word arrogance is really this. It's saying to God, Lord, I can do more than you think I can. I can do more than you think I can. Uh, that can be a, a quantitative thing, just the number of things that you think you can do. You put more on your plate. You burn the candle at both ends. You say, Lord, I can do more than you think I can. The, the God who created life, the God who created the rhythm of life, you know, work six, rest one, right? Jesus, the example that he gave us when he walked the earth, he actually slept. He actually napped. He actually removed himself from everybody and spent time with the Father, filling up so that he could pour out. This rhythm that God established, we say to him, Lord, I can improve upon it. I can do more than you think I can. And the more that we add on to our plate, this is where we hit the brick wall. This is where health problems come in. This is where sleep problems come in. It's arrogance. Lord, I can do more than you think I can. It may not be a quantitative thing. It may be actually a qualitative thing. When we say, Lord, I can do more than you think I can, sometimes we operate in our arrogance when we say, you know, I'm... I'm pretty much the best at everything, you know? And, and, and one of the worst things, one of the most arrogant things we can do is to try to be somebody else's gifting. God tells us all the parts supply the body. And when we think we're the smartest one in the room, when we think that give me enough time and I'm eventually going to do everything better than everyone else, James says that's arrogance. Jesus said some amazing things in the Bible. I want to point you to one with regards to this topic. In John 5, 36b, Jesus said, The Father has given me works to do so that I might complete them. The works I do testify about me that the Father sent me. This is Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the Lamb of God, our Lord and our Savior, who could operate anyway, who could do anything. And he tells us the Lord, the Father gave him works to do. And those are the works that he's busy doing. He's not doing them as an afterthought. He's not doing them as a mist, like just pointing everybody to themselves. 
eventually fading away. Saying, I'm doing what the Father gave me to do. And in fact, in me doing it, it doesn't point people to me. It points people to the fact that the Father sent me. How many of us can say this? How many of us can say that we are only doing what God has assigned for us to do? Philippians 2.6 says, Though he was God, Christ did not think it of equality with God something to cling to. How many of us in different aspects of our life are interested in pointing people to ourselves, going our own way, not following the rhythm of the one who gave us life, but falling into the patterns of this world? And then when we get tripped up, and then when we experience hardship, consider God and call out to him and ask him to help. With that example, we read this final verse, verse 17, that concludes chapter 4. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him or for her, it is sin. This book of James without the love and the grace and the mercy of the cross is just a right between your eyes gut punch. But like we talked about a few weeks ago, every warning from God is an invitation to better. He created us. He knows us. He loves us. He's got a purpose for us. And he says, stay with me. Life done together. Life with me in my rightful place, foundationally prioritization in your life is going to translate into a life that's better. Maybe not easy all the time. Maybe not the way you want it. Maybe not granting all your prayer requests when you want them, how you want them, but it's going to be better, greater, higher, deeper than anything you can come up with on your own. I don't care how old we get. I don't care how many times we read the book of James. It gets in your kitchen. He starts reading your mail. But he renews a clarity of who we are that wakes us up sometimes from who we think we are. We lack knowledge about tomorrow and we lack the power to do anything about that lack of knowledge about tomorrow. But God knows it all. And he says, stay with me. Right now, I trust he's been bringing to mind those areas. Maybe it's one area, maybe it's multiple areas in your life where you have drifted away. And he says, stay with me. You don't have to wait and worry and get all your crooked places made straight. You just need to come back. You just need to stay with me. You just need to take a step towards me. So in our remaining moments, I want to put some meat on the bone because he says, instead you ought to say if the Lord wills. It's not a command to rote repetition. But instead, we need to take a look at what does it mean that the Lord wills? What does it mean that the Lord wills? Let's just go back, sorry. I think it means this. The Lord will help you do what you are doing if you're doing what he told you to do. A lot of times we don't hear God, we don't see God, we don't think he's there, we don't think he cares, 
He's not answering what I'm calling out to him for. What God's saying is, you're not hearing me here because you're not doing what I told you here. And I want, to, I want you to stay with me. I want you to come back to me. I heard a pastor one time say, if you feel dry in your relationship with God, if you feel like you're distant from him, go back to when it was working well. Go back to when that relationship seemed close and intimate and personal. If you need to, go all the way back to the cross. Get messed up again in a really good way by the gospel, the love that God has for you, the sacrifice that Jesus made for you, the guidance and personal counsel of the Holy Spirit that's resonant inside of you. Go back to the cross. I heard a quote one time I love. It's one having to do with sharing the gospel. Our hope is not in a person that we're sharing the gospel with. Our hope is in the gospel that we're sharing with a person. If you need to, go back to the cross. Get undone. Get messed up in a good way about the love that God has for you. The Lord will help you do what you are doing if you're doing what he's told you to do. So how can we know? How can we best know if we're doing what he's told us to do? What does it mean if the Lord wills? Well, the first step is to, like I just said, just get messed up. That God is like God. Everyone say that like a Baptist preacher. God. God is like God, you know? He's big and he's mighty. And he has sovereignty over every aspect of our lives. We, get, we lose that. We get distracted from that. We get off track from that. And we go our ways as our own little mini-gods at times, making our own plans, moving on our own might, our own will, our own smarts. God is like God, that there is a God, and he is good, and he is not me. Life's uncertainty and life's brevity is under God's sovereignty. We are not the highest authority in our lives, and we are submitted to him. Isaiah 55, 9 says this, For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We need to return back to the, the truth and the awe and the wonder and the fear of God that's the start of wisdom, not the trembling, scared of God, but the majesty of God, his ways and his thoughts. We don't even scratch the surface. We are so limited and so constrained and constricted. The first step to know if you're walking in God's will is that re renewed understanding. He says, stay with me. That renewed perspective that he is God and we are not. As the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, my thoughts higher than your thoughts. Next thing we need to do is we need to make a plan, right? That verse in Proverbs, you know, good planning, hard work leads to prosperity. God's not anti-plan. He wants you to make a plan. If we need to, you know, do the work, find the people, check with the experts, you know, talk to some people a little further down the road from you who have some wisdom in the area that you are looking to make your plan in, you know? Success comes from wisdom. You know what wisdom comes from? 
failure. Talk to some people who have tried some things and it hasn't worked out. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. You know, a lot of times in the world, when we try something and we fail, the world says, ah, I'm sorry that didn't work out for you. I'm sorry you you weren't able to get that opportunity or secure that job or, you know, get that loan or whatever it is. And as, as followers of Jesus Christ, we have a different perspective. We say, you know, you're God. Lord, you're going to open doors no man can close. Lord, your counsel and your guide and your direction is inside of me. I don't want to spend time, waste time going down paths you don't have for me. Thank you for shutting that door. I don't need to waste time there anymore. Make a plan. Make wise decisions. Glean counsel. Gather data that put you in the best position possible for the opportunities of tomorrow. Whether it's in your schedule, whether it's in your finances, whether it has to do with your health, your relationships. Make a plan. I want to encourage you when you make that plan to ask yourself two, two questions. I ask myself regularly, and they have served me well in this idea of making a plan with God. You know, that idea of, I want to invite this person into, my, into our relationship, right? God is the starting point. He is the priority. So two questions I want to encourage you to ask is, the first one is, am I doing what you want me to do? God, Lord, am I doing what you want me to do? second question is, am I where you want me to be? You know, I'm a pastor. I was a pastor in New York. And that season had a beginning and it had an end. And today, I am happy, proud um, that I am a pastor in Delaware. That season began five years ago. You know, but I ask God that question. Am I doing what you want me to do? That calling on my life. Is it a calling? Is it some pizza I ate last night? What is it, Lord? Am I doing what you want me to do? And when I started doing it almost a decade ago, I realized this is what I think God fashioned me in my mother's womb to do. There's a fulfillment I've never felt doing anything else. There's a joy I've never felt doing anything else. Am I doing what you want me to do, Lord? I want to follow the presence or the absence of the peace of your Holy Spirit. So guide me. And then am, am I where you want me to be? That may be a zip code. That may be in a particular decision. Maybe with a particular relationship. Am I doing what you want me to do? And am I where you want me to be? Make a plan. Proverbs 16.9 says this, people plan their path but the Lord secures their steps. This is a relationship between you and God. This is one that you work out together. He's put stuff in you. Work it. He's put giftings and talents in you. Work it. He's put people in your life. Seek them. Make the plan. And God, let God secure your steps. Number three, submit the plan to God and pivot with him. If God wants to redirect my steps or rewrite my past, then I, I welcome it. I welcome it. Because I used to do what I wanted to do. It's got me nowhere fast. 
And today I ask, Lord, what do you want me to do? I'm under his authority. It's not my life, it's his life, and I submit to his will. Galatians 2.20 says this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. He's jealous for us. And he wants us to seek him. He wants us to invite him. He wants us to submit to him. He wants us to surrender to him. Instead of making our own plans and going our own way and then considering God and calling out to God to come and help us with a cleanup on aisle three, he wants us to actually start with him. I'm going to ask you all to stand with me. I don't need to tell all of you, we all experience it. Some of you may be experiencing it right now. The reality is that we drift. And we follow a way that seems right to us. We get distracted, particularly in this 21st century existence. There is so many things vying for your attention. And a lot of times we get off track because we get distracted by the things of this life. Some of us just flat out leak. We hear the truth. And because we are not renewing our minds, we're not making a priority to focus our relationship with God. We're not taking the steps necessary to invite people into our lives who can believe God's best for us and pray God's best for us and hold us accountable to God's best for us, we leak. And as a result, we move away from the rhythm of the one who created the life, who knows how it's best lived, who said, my ways are higher than yours, my thoughts are higher than yours. And instead, we begin to follow the patterns of this world, saying, look at me, click on me, retweet me. Am I trending? How many Facebook friends do I have? Instagram followers do I have? Instead of following the rhythm of the one who gave us life, we end up falling into the patterns. And following the patterns of this life, people that don't even know him. Remember those words from Paul. One of the hardest things is when you don't know God. We have patterns of spending that bury us into debt, getting the newest toy, the greatest experience. We have patterns of partiality. We talked about that a few weeks ago, saying you're in the in-group or the out-group. You're right or you're wrong. You're with me or you're against me and making our decisions based upon that partiality and that prevents the unity that God wants us to walk out. We have patterns of fear that cause us to retreat from relationships and not allow ourselves to be vulnerable, to be willing to be hurt, to be willing to stumble 
and fail. Every significant thing I've learned in my life, I've learned through some discomfort. But when we follow patterns of fear, we put up that, that arm, we put up that wall, causing us to retreat from relationships. We fall into patterns of anger, which end up hurting those we're closest to, those closest around us, hurt us. We fall into patterns of shame, which make us hide. We fall into patterns of guilt, which lead to self-loathing. I don't know what you're walking through right now, but God does. And if you've fallen into the patterns of this world in a particular area or in multiple particular areas, therefore from the will of God God says stay with me God says take a step I got a plan for you come blow your head off your neck Just stay with me greater, deeper, higher better not always easier but better take a step towards me stay with me See, the good news is that God can break into those patterns of this world. Again, the power of God and the power of Satan are not equal. These are tiny matters for him. These are easy actions for him to take, to break into those patterns that, has that have caused you to suddenly realize, where is God? He feels so far away. I'm so distant from him. My relationship with him is so dry. God can break into those with a love that's perfect and complete with a grace that's personally and intimately meant for you. With his spirit that can renew and reestablish the rhythms of a dependent relationship upon him, a dependent relationship that you desperately need, that I desperately need, and that he is so jealous to have with us. Romans 12, 2 do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing. That could be spent time in the Word. That could be spent in prayer with Him. You can renew by taking a step. You can renew by saying, I'm putting a stake in the ground. You can renew by saying, as for me and my house, my relationship with God's going to be the priority. My relationship with him is going to be the foundation. I'm going to take a step towards him, reestablish that relationship in this area. Start with him. Begin with him. Renew your commitment to him. Renew your prioritization with him. Renew your dependence upon him. We're going to have some prayer team members up here. Invite you. I want to encourage you with everything in me. Take a step. We'd love to pray with you, love to agree with you, but more important than any of that, we'd love for your relationship with God in an area or in your life to be the priority of your life. Let us worship Him now.